when I was 25 and a half, I started a podcast. The goal? To review some of the newest and the latest movies, along with some other stuff. With the help of my guests, I was able to do this. But there were dark forces tampering with my podcast and with me. They called it an improvised podcast for some reason. I eventually found help in the form of myself. Yes, the me from a universe where the movies I reviewed got delayed. Apparently, my podcast made it to his universe. I know now that it is my duty, for the good of that universe, nay, the multiverse, to keep recapping and reviewing these movies, to hold listeners over until they could eventually see the movies as they were made in their world. For some reason, they come out differently in my world, but it's kind of entertaining that way. My name is Steven Schinder, and this is Delayed Replay. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the season two premiere of Delayed Replay, that podcast where we review slash recap some of the latest movies, or maybe they're weeks old or months old, as is the case of this one. This one being The King's Man, which came out September of last year. You know, people in that other universe still haven't seen it yet, so we figured we'd help by trying to hold them over, even if the movie being different in our universe than in their universe. I'm Steven Schinder, your host as always. Joining me on this episode is a few buddies from Sussex Sci-Fi and Horror Society. I actually studied abroad at University of Sussex back in autumn 2017, and the me of the other universe told me that he's gotten to know them more on Discord, and so figured I'd connect with them here and we could talk about this movie. Uh, so first up, we have uh, Ted Richardson, also known as Gitbag the Great. Uh, how are you doing, Ted? I'm uh, I'm doing marvelously well. I just um, I made some rather nice um, steak medallions earlier today with some uh, pan-seared asparagus, broccoli, and uh, cheddar mash. Um, generally, I'm known as kind of like the surly alcohol swilling um enforcer of the sussex sci-fi and horror society and i generally have a bit of a penchant for quite cheesy um b movies that kind of sort of just feel that sort of cheeseburger entertainment itch um i think i first went to the society viewing in late 2017 probably around the same time as you did Stephen. um and i've been doing written film reviews since 2011 and i've been doing like gaming videos on youtube since like probably early 2014. But um, yeah, generally my taste in films tend to center around action, sci-fi, and horror. And that's basically all that everyone needs to know about me before they find out about the horrendous skeletons in my cupboard. <laughs> <laughs> that's not yeah. me, is it? <laughs> uh, it? Oh, no, no. There's at least a couple dozen more in there. Don't worry. <laughs> Yeah, and that other voice you just heard is the president of the society. It is Greg. Hello, my greedy little fellows. <laughs> but you can just hear and feel his fingers waggle. Yeah. yeah All right. And... Ow. That was a line from the best British TV show, Top Gear, which I recommend all of you watch for you. Yeah, I need to check out Top Gear at some point. I yeah, guess. Do not watch the new ones. Anything <laughs> since Hammond, 
left Hammond Richard. Yeah, ever since they left, it's horrid. So <laughs> just watch the earlier ones, it'd be good. All right, yeah, we got some top gear elitists here, I guess. So I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> uh, and that last voice you heard, uh, he's. I already forget what your position is in this society, but it is James McCary. Hello, I'm the vice president of the society and the welfare officer. He's the bummer of all the jokes. <laughs> no, I, I, to be honest with you, Greg, I think that's you because you call yourself <laughs> El Presidente and you burp constantly whenever you have viewings. So it's like <laughs> you're the one who gets jokes at. You dare criticize my leadership? Yeah, because you you basically run the society as a sort of ad hoc military junta. It's like because I can. You're there to. And I will. <laughs> right. So yeah, we're talking about the Kingsman, a prequel to the other two films, The Secret Service and Golden Circle, all of which are like somewhat based on a comic book, uh, apparently, and. Directed by Matthew Vaughn, who worked on Kick-Ass and X-Men First Class. So, yeah, there's a bit of a through line with his work, I guess. Uh, But we'll go around the horn with our impressions on the movies that came out before this one. So, Ted, what were your impressions with Kingsman 1 and 2? I think they uh, both kind of could be sort of um, categorized as sort of cheeseburger, popcorn, um, blockbuster action flicks, because they're both inherently ridiculous and mad as a box of drunken badgers, but they're both enjoyable on a basic level. However, I would say that the first one is generally better, both in terms of its its subjective enjoyment levels and also in terms of its objective filmmaking, because the 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 motivations and the plots of the the main villains in each film are mad but in the first one there's at least some kind of believability to the behavior of the main villain played by Samuel L. Jackson um and while the plot he has is kind of ridiculous and wouldn't really work in a, a real world um uh, sort of setting, at least at the time that the film was released, um, it, he does behave in a way that is somewhat believable to a slightly cartoony action movie villain. However, um, while this, while a lot of the similar themes of like ridiculous spectacle action are similar and represented in the second film, and the second film has very much a sort of through line that's based off of. Um, ripping into real world politics, at least in the con, at least in the context of when that film was released, um, I feel like I can I enjoy the second film less because the writing generally isn't as good. The plot moves around a bit more of a sluggish place and is kind of all over the place. Plus, the plot of the villain makes even less sense than in the first film and is really like stretched out. So. It's hard to, I mean, I'd say the first film for me is like a seven out of ten. You'll enjoy it, and it's above the average of like the action films that were being released at the time. But the second film, it's like a five out of ten. It's like a yeah, just put on the background in a in a party when you're all playing beer pong and getting drunk. So um, that's my feelings towards the films, generally speaking. All right, what about you, James? 
Uh, well, um, I didn't see the uh, first movie when it came out in the cinemas, uh, but um, a friend recommended that we watched it together, and I absolutely loved it. I wasn't sure if I was going to enjoy it, but the the kind of crazy comedy that it went about was the sort that I really enjoyed. Uh, I especially enjoyed all the jabs against James Bond because I really love James Bond. But at the same time, I understand how stupid parts of it is. And the and all the pickings of that were just perfect. I then went to see the second movie in the cinema. And um, I, I mean, it was good, but it wasn't as fantastic as the first movie. I mean, um, it just felt like they couldn't quite capture the sparkle that the first movie had. I felt like... It was a bit too unsubtle in ways, and it, it, I just didn't um, deal with the characters as, and emphasize them as much as I emphasized with the first um, set of characters. But it was still an, an enjoyable movie, and definitely one that you could just watch, not really pay attention to and enjoy, but I'd still definitely prefer watching the first film over the second. Nice. What about you, Greg? Um, the main parts of these films that I like the most has to be the the cameos because they are just <laughs> otherworldly is just how I can, how I can say that uh, especially Elton John in the second <laughs> film where it's just like it feels like every scene he's in is a fever dream but you can definitely tell he's just having a great time and he's just having fun oh yeah just strutting around in his <laughs> just in chicken that. suit in that fabulous sequin sort of like suit and then fighting robotic dogs it's mad as badgers but you can tell he's having a great time fighting off some dog soldiers right (laughs) in the glass box when he just tells that (laughs) nurse to just fuck off you can definitely tell he's like he's it's sort of like funny because i feel like in that scene like he's they're not even like filming a film there he was just genuinely annoyed because like yeah i wondered if that was scripted or not (laughs) yeah they probably just didn't serve him like his daily earl grey tea and he got really mad (laughs) (laughs) he just flipped out they thought oh this is crazy good we should record this Yeah, and I mean, Taron Egerton went on to play Elton John in Rocket Man, yeah. which uh, I thought was actually really good. Yeah, it's not bad. Um, yeah. Um, and yeah, we also had like Mark Hamill in the first movie. That was kind of weird, right? It was like before he made his Star Wars return, like a year or several months. Oh, yeah, I forgot really? about the first one? Yeah, he remember being in the first one. Uh, no, got, yeah, the first one came out in 2014, didn't it? Uh, yeah, I think it came out December 2014, um, about a year over in England and maybe early 2015 over here. Mm. Came out. Let me just double check that. I mean, I remember, yeah, I remember the Star Wars Episode 7 came out late 2015. Yeah, the first one came out yeah. 20, yeah, 13th of December 2014. Yeah. And then it came out, um, yeah, uh, something called because I remember I went to see the um, first Kingsman film uh, cinema with my mum and it was weirdly enough actually I felt like even though I went to see that film with <laughs> someone else with my mum who has very different tastes in films um, and yet I went to see the second film at the cinema on my own I felt like I had a more enjoyable 
filming uh, viewing experience uh, on the, in the with the first one because it was generally a better made film. Well, I saw the first. I think in twenty fifteen, um, like after it was on like home video. Um, I watched it with me with with me. <laughs> of course, I watched it with me. I, was, <laughs> um, I watched it with my brother and our friends. And we just loved how absolutely bonkers and colorful it got with, like, the exploding heads yeah. and stuff like that. And it was just well-acted, well-made all around. And um, at the end of it, my brother is like, they're going to make a second one. And one of our friends is like, no, they're going to ruin it. And uh, while I do think... Um, so the Golden Circle I watched about a year ago. While I, while I do think I enjoyed it more than the average person, I still think it pales in comparison to the first movie um which i sort of expected anyway because it was tough to recapture the magic of the first movie yeah i, I mean that's kind of much the way i feel about um the third terminator film because even though um even though i enjoy that it just doesn't even come close to like the legacy of the first and second Terminator films, and and, they, and maybe that's like a matter of circumstance or like when it was released or just the fact that it had so much to live up to. And I feel like that probably did happen a lot with uh, the Golden Circle as well. To be fair, so I don't think it's the the the, uh, the less positive reception is entirely its fault. In all fairness. My circumstances with the Terminator movies is kind of weird because, like, so, like, when I was, um, like, maybe 10, 11, 12, somewhere around there, um, I watched, or maybe 9, I don't know, uh, so as a kid, I guess you could say, uh, Terminator 3 was the first Terminator movie I watched, I believe, and I remember loving the speech at the end from John Connor. I still think it's a great speech, mm. but, but, you know, there's no denying that, like, Terminator 3, Genesis, and Dark Fate are basically trying to repeat, like, the first and second movies. Salvation tried doing something different, and I, I like that, I, but it didn't resonate as well I, with many people. I, I do respect what Salvation tried to do. I just don't respect the fact that it is about as interesting as watching snails race or listening to an episode or listening to <laughs> or watching an episode of songs of praise um so i i just can't get into that one to be honest right that's fair <laughs> um so yeah this new one is called the king's man and it's a prequel sent world war one um it's actually the first kingsman movie i watched in the theater uh so that was fun um so what do you guys think of, like, this approach of, like, taking in some, like, historical figures and portraying them with, like, these sorts of actors and in this kind of over-the-top manner? Oh, God. I mean, like, I have a very particular view on it because I stud I've studied history for a long time. I focused a lot on history during my GCSEs. I did history A-level. I did history and politics, my undergrad, and then also contemporary history for my master's. Um, so in my opinion, if you're going to do history, you have to really clearly uh, differentiate between whether or not it's historical fiction or it's a historical biopic. Um, like, for, for example, um, I don't like the film 1492 Conquest of Paradise because it's it is based off of real events but it 
dramatizes and alters so many points of history that it may as well be fiction quite honestly and it glosses over quite a great deal of the um the really demonstrable and downright evil things that christopher columbus did when he you know in quotation marks discovered america <laughs> um even though the vikings yeah. did so 500 years earlier but um <laughs> Um, but um, I would say, in in terms of this film, in terms of The King's Man, I don't have any problems with historical figures and historical events being treated in a sort of semi-fictional way, because you can clearly tell from the framing of the film, even even necessarily, even without them necessarily stating that it is historical fiction, that it is historical fiction. Um, and as a result, I can sort of slightly turn off my historical um, nitpicking brain a little bit. Um, but like the one thing I would add on to that is like I don't mind it being historical fiction, and I don't mind them playing around with the concepts of history within a fictional context and a fictional story. What I would ask is that it is generally respect respectful to um, the story and the history that it is based on. And that it is generally believable to the events that happened in terms of the history that it's based on. But generally speaking, I don't have a problem with the way that films like this use the history it's based on, just as long as it is believable and broadly accurate. Right, because we were kind of talking about um, the Inglorious Bastards comparison, mm. where they, they kind of have a bit of leeway just because going in you know it's kind of over the top I mean, and like daniel Brohl <laughs> is even in both films which is like he plays is eric jan hennison inglorious bastards is like such a bonkers film it's like mad there's like a bunch of drugged up frogs in the shoe case but it's and <laughs> and and so like that without even again that's another example of a film without even saying it's fiction you can clearly tell that it is historical fiction um, and yeah, because and, and that's in large part because of the tone of just how bonkers it is. So yeah, yeah. And we also got Tom Hollander, uh, not to be confused with Tom Holland playing George the Fifth, <laughs> Wilhelm the Second, and Nicholas the Second, who are all cousins. Apparently, it's kind of like a Kevin Smith view of the universe thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that was a really good idea. Because obviously one of the big things about World War One was that it was a family affair. And if you look at historical pictures, they do look very alike. Like I've heard that at least two of them routinely were mistaken for each other. So I think that's a really clever way that Vince Vaughn used to show just how similar these warring families were. And I think Tom Hollander was the perfect choice for it. He did a really good job. Did you say Vince Vaughn? And oh, yeah, sorry, Matthew Vaughn. <laughs> Bit of a difference. <laughs> uh, I'm leaving that in. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, like, like, yeah, that was kind of the joke that he was making. Um, and, and, I mean, family affairs and war, that's a Star Wars movie in the making, you know? <laughs> Someone mentioned James Bond earlier. Like, the Kingsman movies very obviously play on the tropes of, like, James Bond movies. And we actually have a Bond connection in this prequel. We have Ray Fiennes playing the Duke of Oxford. He played M in some of the like recent Bond films. And Matthew Vaughn has even said he would have made a great James Bond like 20 years ago or something. But what did you guys think of Ray Fiennes in this 
movie. Um, I guess we'll start with Greg. So Ray finds obviously he knows how to how to act, and this man <laughs> is a king's man, and he can act. He was very good in this movie, and I feel that he put a lot of he took like parts of Voldemort. And he was just yeah, I forgot he was Voldemort. Yeah, he was. He took he took parts of Voldemort, and if you've seen um, the Hannibal movies, he took part of the um, oh what's on Red Dragon. Yeah, he, he, he took some Red Dragon in there as well, and it's just yeah, astonishing work by him. I don't know why when you said he took some Red Dragon in there, it sounded like he was inserting in some energy drink into like a cocktail or something like some <laughs> yeah. knockoff brand of Red Bull or something. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, to me, it sounded like Red Dragon was like the name of some sort of drug. <laughs> <laughs> but to be to be fair, this this was like I mean, in the setting of this film, this is like in the nineteen early nineteen tens, around the time of the First World War. So this is pretty much around the time when like doctors were prescribing like opium and cocaine to their stu- to their patients for things like I don't know, like <laughs> ghosts in their blood or like aspirations in their eyeballs or some cobblers <laughs> so it, it's probably not too far to of a stretch to make that reference yeah i mean you know ralph finds he just oozes british class and he does that perfectly in this movie it's just a perfect role and like you said i think the character that he the sort of britishness that he used as m really comes off here but then also he does use some of his more uh more fun characters from other movies as sort of basis and just it it works so well. It does help that he uses a cane, which obviously <laughs> goes back to him being Voldemort. <laughs> so I feel like they definitely wanted to go him using the cane as a wand, perhaps. It would have been so great, though, if, if he tried to shoot he a spell did. from the end of his cane and and then he just, halfway through his line, he goes, damn, wrong franchise. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I the bit from yeah. the second movie with the, um, the briefcase. Oh, oh God, yeah. <laughs> um... I really liked his performance in this film. I thought, I, I actually, I did see what what Greg and um, James mentioned in terms of him being sort of like a fun character and bringing some of the aspects of his more lighthearted characters from other films into this movie. But what I got more of an impression of was the fact that he was kind of a hard man who was like this pressured aristocrat who was kind of like really pressured to do the right thing, but at a great cost. But you could deep down inside still see that he had some like real tangible sense of like morals and like wanted to do the right thing in the right way. Um, so he was kind of like he felt like a very sympathetic character to me too. He was kind of like pressed to do some quite sort of hard things to do. Um, so I, I felt um, while I couldn't sort of like connect with this character on the level of him being like an aristocrat, I felt like I could connect with him on a personal level in terms of the actions he was doing. So I felt like it was a very compelling role, to be honest. It's very cool that he has a cane that has like a sword in it. Um, and they do kind of shake up that dynamic by uh, making like, you know, the main young protagonist, uh, his own son, Conrad, uh, played by Harris mm. Dickinson. Uh, so, like, this movie begins with, like, this insane, uh, like, World War One stuff. Like, basically, we get, like, a recap of everything that's going on. Like, the assassination attempts on Franz Ferdinand, and then the stuff in the trenches. And 
uh, Conrad and a friend of his, um, like, have to go behind enemy lines, and then he has to save him. But, um, uh, like, what what did you guys think of the way Conrad was introduced? It was definitely interesting, I feel, you know, and um, I think um, introducing him, you had to be careful because uh, it would be quite difficult, and I think a lot of people would compare him to Eggsy from the first movie. So I think they they did a good attempt at trying to create a different character to him and it didn't just feel like a copy and paste right what about you greg what do you think <laughs> um if you've seen the film 1917 i got that kind of i, I haven't oh <laughs> no you can't just reference every world war one film to 1917 no no it's just because of how he had to save his friend because obviously that happened in 1917, it was absolutely brutal what had what that guy had to go through in 1917. And I feel like what happened to Conrad, it kind of, it builds up the character that he has. Mm. Like, uh, like, like Eggsy, he didn't have to, like, yes, he had hardships, obviously. I mean, yeah, with the training, he's, he's, but obviously. he's a working class lad from like a very rough council estate in London, so he's kind of got society working against him from the offset but um i i I, even though he conrad was um kind of from a very obviously like uh upper or like upper middle class background he you you felt like he came into like this adventure with like this sort of like wide fresh face um innocence um and the willingness to do what needed to be done to save the world alongside his dad and because because his dad already had this hard edge, you knew that he was kind of like the kind of character who could undertake such things, but you, I kind of sort of like had slight... And it was a bit of a mother hen sort of attitude where I sort of kind of felt a bit worried about Conrad because I was thinking, oh, God, can he manage this? And he, um, you know, I don't usually really like sort of young sort of sidekick characters, but he was strangely compelling um, and in terms of his own journey and his relationship with his father. I thought he... If it was one character on their own, they would have both been fairly effective. But I think combined together, they made something far greater than the sum of their parts. And they created quite a good central emotional journey throughout the film. Yeah. And we even get these, um, like, like this whole training thing at the mansion. So again, like those X-Men first class type of vibes. Um, and he does like this knife fighting with Shola, who is uh, his dad's right-hand man. And he's played by... Jamon Hansu, who weirdly was in A Quiet Place Part 2, which was like the season one premiere topic of this podcast. <laughs> like, I did not oh, intend God. that, but yeah. Quiet Place. I mean, the first Quiet Place was very good. It really wasn't. I've yet oh. to see that movie. I like it. Was, it. it was nothing. It was the quintessential example it was of a good. concept film. It was just popular based off of the concept that it had and then when you actually you know when you actually look at it with a critical eye it just falls apart <laughs> just don't get it i do get it it's just not very good and that's a, that's a <laughs> response it's, it's like a joker nothing you wouldn't get you wouldn't get it morally <laughs> right but yeah i thought this training sequence with the knife was pretty cool i do think it went on a bit yeah. longer than it needed to like at 10 minutes of knife fight training but what did you guys um think? i thought of it, yeah i agree like the the fighting was incredible at the beginning like 
all of uh, all of the Kingsman fight scenes are just wonderful and very well choreographed with a great editing style. But sometimes I've, he can get a bit too wrapped up in the amazingness of it. And yeah, I think you're right. I think it did begin to show. But I think it was able to get its point across of the uh, ability that these people are fighting at. But yeah, a bit more editing would have done the trick. It's... I mean, training montages are a really difficult thing to get right because it also kind of depends on the kind of film you're making. Like, if it's like a martial arts film, then I kind of feel like having one is kind of obligatory. Um, but like, usually, I would say like the the prime timescale for like a really good um, training montage is probably like somewhere between like fifty seconds to like a minute and a half. Um, even then, usually go on the shorter side of that spectrum. Um, like, the, the best example I think of like a really good inspirational training montage that's a little bit cheesy, but it's just got just the right amount of like genuine inspiration is in um, it's probably in either Kickboxer or Bloodsport, which are two very very Jean Claude Van Damme centric sort of films, and that really play to like the strengths of his earlier career. Um, which I would recommend both of them because they're both bonkers but also quite fun um but yeah i feel like this one probably overran its course by about probably 30 40 seconds it, it did it felt like it served its purpose but just it kind of um kind of similar to the second entirety of the second film it just dragged on a, about 20 percent too long i think yeah and i mean with 80s movies uh that have training montages you kind of need like the cheesy 80s yeah that's what i mean like ones, in I the think. one for Bloodsport, for example like there's just like so much cheesy synth and like jean-claude van damme's like youthful muscles like rippling in like the southeast asian sun and you're just like oh yeah this just makes you want to gap and you're like eat a steak and then punch a tree in half or something <laughs> it's, it's fantastic it's really really great eat, eat a tree and cut yeah, a yeah. Half eat, 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 a, eat half a forest and then cut a steak in half by looking at it <laughs> yeah um, yeah we do have like badass characters in this movie as is par for the course for Kingsmen. Uh, one of them is Polly played by Gemma who, Carter. Who I might have a, who ever since the uh, uh, Clash of the Titans remake, I have had a massive crush on, to be honest. Oh <laughs> um, uh, geez. I, I forgot. It's, 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 I'll be honest. It's not as great as the um, original from the eighties, but it's, it's decent enough, but uh, I saw her in that film and I, oh, I just fell in love with her. I've got such a <laughs> schoolboy crush on her, to be honest. <laughs> I think Rosa Pike was in the um, second film, actually. Uh, Rosamund Pike. Yeah, right? Rosamund Pike, sorry. And she, yeah, she's just like, she's it's weird because she actually does a good performance in that film, but she just feels weirdly out of place. It's really odd. I think she acts well, but her character wasn't well developed mm. and sort of just existed. No, which yeah, which is annoying because she always turns out like a seven out of ten performance in every one of her films. So it's like it does feel like she was a bit wasted in that one, unfortunately. But mm. but yeah, I'm I agree. I felt like um, Gemma Ireton's role in uh, the King's Man was kind of like Mary Poppins by the way of. Lara Croft to the power of um, of Lady from the Devil May Cry series. Uh, she had like sort of different aspects to the to her that you would initially think wouldn't really work, but 
um, she she weirdly made it kind of sort of work. I think like her her performance felt a bit one note at points, but generally she felt like Mary Poppins on steroids at points, which I thought was really funny, and I actually genuinely <laughs> really enjoyed, despite how mad her character was. She even has the umbrella with the gun I in mean, it, which is just a lot. That's of fun. just fantastic. Yeah, such a great performance, and yeah, I really enjoyed it as well. Just sort of the over topness of her character, sort of like. A, and I think it just did really well. And I think that's something that Vaughn does really well is producing over-the-top characters who are just just the right amount of over-the-top. Like, you, you don't feel... You don't at all think, oh, this is just utterly ridiculous. But you know that every scene they're like in is going to be goals. crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, at least she was not a Ray. I was happy about that. Okay. <laughs> Let's not get Greg started on that topic. Oh yeah, Greg isn't the biggest Ray fan. So. <laughs> yeah, agree to disagree. Yeah, look, on my let's part. let's just get out of that that area because it's basically like going to a rave during a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that other universe is unfortunately dealing with a pandemic. Yeah, and they're, so. dealing, they're dealing yeah. with it like. A, they're dealing with it in the same way where the someone would think that the best way to deal with a dirty laptop would be to rinse it in water. So, yeah, they're not dealing it in the best way, to be honest. Let's, let's get real. Is that not how you clean your laptop? Um, I mean, no. you could try it, but it probably wouldn't work. <laughs> you could douse it. I mean, it's on. worth a try. Isn't it? <laughs> just, just douse it in vodka. No, you, no. Douse it in vodka. It sounds like you would, you would douse yourself and alcohol before getting the idea to yeah. do that. To it's, it's just like, hey, Billy, why have you got a bottle of absinthe in your room? Oh, my laptop's a bit dirty. <laughs> <laughs> right, but um, so what do you guys think of Captain Morton, uh, Matthew Good's character, who's also called the Shepherd. Like, do you think he was well-developed enough, or could there have been more of him, or what do you guys think? Mm. It's hard to say because I don't think he did a bad job, but I just think he was so understated that he might as well have just not really been there, to be honest. I think his role could have been better served by being split up amongst other characters, but I mean, he didn't do a bad job. I can't really criticize him. He just did like a five out of 10 job, to be honest. Oh, so he didn't do a good no, he... job? <laughs> You're saying that like I said, he did a bad job. I'm just saying he didn't do anything particular. Well, because the actor's last oh, name is shut Just awful. That's just like weapons grade puns. Um, no, look, uh, his performance, I couldn't pick out anything that was particularly bad with his performance. I just thought it was serviceable and he just didn't do anything particularly noteworthy. And like the character had its uses in terms of story building, but. I just felt that he was just kind of there. Uh, that's fair. Yeah, because I feel like the other characters have more memorable moments. And then, like, after seeing the movie, it's like, oh, yeah. I yeah, it, it, he kind of too. felt like this film's equivalent of, like, I don't know, what's the big blue bald guy from Power Rangers again? Um, Talking about the remake movie, that was horrible. God, I don't even know what that was. But, um, <laughs> yeah, the the big blue bald guy who guides the Power Rangers in the original series, he kind of felt like that, but somehow more inconsequential. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because like the actor right. appeared in Downton Abbey, 
which you know is like set in in this sort of similar period in the same sort of area like the aristocracy. But like his character in that was pretty low key, and so I think he really struggled to break out of that. And with all these other grey actors around, his character definitely got pushed to the side of it. Yeah, I get what you mean. Uh, we also have like Aaron Taylor Johnson, uh, who played Kickass himself. Uh, he plays uh, Lee Unwin in this, who has like the same name as Eggsy's dad. Uh, so, what'd you guys think of his performance and where they took his character? It was pretty quick. Silver. Oh, oh, <laughs> Uh, I thought you were going to say quick. I mean, I mean, if anyone's going to make terrible puns, you'd expect it to be Stephen. I just didn't expect that from Greg, so it caught me off guard. <laughs> yeah, he was quick sober. In yeah, I know. That's why I said that was a terrible pun. <laughs> yeah, I didn't see that pun coming. <sighs> oh, yeah, he was also in Tenet, so he, he kind of had his thing going there. Right. Yeah, Tenet was wild. But... Tenet was a trip and a half. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I really Damn enjoyed Tenet. But yeah, um, like it kind of felt like they weren't making up, like to me, this is what it felt like. It felt like they weren't making up their mind on whether this was an older relative of Eggsy or if his father was somehow um super old and just ages better somehow because there are all these implications like similar lines and whatnot and it's like what's their intention with it I and mean, that aspect was kind of confusing to me yeah it felt a bit like the end of rise of skywalker mm-hmm. when he had lando and 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 um that woman and like everyone yeah everyone was like oh yeah come on there must have been his daughter or something or granddaughter and then but probably she just a random person, and he just cares. So. Right, because I, I think in a visual dictionary or something, it says that Lando lost a daughter, yeah. so it's like, yeah, so it's like they yeah. have similar experiences, and it's like, are they related, or is he yeah, helping her? And it yeah. was confusing at the time. Yeah, that's that's what kind of what I got from Aaron's character, was that you just, it wasn't flushed enough. Like, you it wasn't really there. He didn't really know. If, if, if they fleshed it out more, or they actually made it clear, it would have helped a lot better, I think. Mm. Yeah, I agree. We kind of skipped past this part, but another montage I really liked was when they were like trying on the different outfits to see what would fit um, Conrad. I, I, I like, yeah, I liked how that, I mean, usually when films do that, then and it's kind of sort of like a, a like-for-like reference to something earlier in the series, I usually feel like it's kind of a sort of um, an overly cheesy sort of like dangling keys in front of the audience face to kind of get their attention, similar to the way that a lot of the um, story beats were um represented in the fifth Terminator film. I just felt like they were just callbacks to like, hey, do you remember this thing earlier in the franchise? And I'm just like, yes, can can I have more movie, please? Um, yeah, so, yeah, I did, yeah. so, so when I saw that coming in this film, I thought, oh, God, please don't suck. But we, I weirdly enjoyed it. I didn't <laughs> mind it so much in this case because it did feel like it tied in quite nicely to 
the sort of character building of Con Conrad. And um, and it kind of, and usually I do have a bit of a negative view of prequels, but generally I think because this was a prequel and this was, we were seeing the birth of the Kingsmen, that it felt like this was like the first time it was happening. So it felt like it had a bit more sort of like historical significance within the mythos and the, the internal sort of history of the franchise. So I honestly didn't mind it as much. And it was actually a pretty well presented uh, scene and it was quite subtly humorous. So I, yeah, I thought it was all right, actually. Um, also, just, um, just pre-warning, I'm just going to open a can of Guinness, if that's all right. <laughs> I've already had my Guinness yeah, for the night. Here's my... Uh, here I am opening uh, a cold I... one with the boys. I've not seen the boys. But yeah, me neither. Uh, season two has come out. It's incredible. I, I watched like the first half of, this, of the season well, and it's just... <laughs> it's hilarious. I mean, I've read the, like, the beginning of the comic series and it's probably not for me, but like I know lots of people are raving about it. Um, yeah, there's one scene in The it, Boys where one of the guys runs really quickly. He's basically like the Flash, and whenever he goes in... For like Quicksilver? <laughs> yeah, and whenever he went into a supermarket, one, one scene, he literally went through someone. <laughs> 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 so they had to clean up after oh, him. Yeah, <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's that's wild. Imagine someone running through you while you're just trying to get some crisps <laughs> from the vending machine. I was on the lower, it was, it was on the lower shelf as well. I just get pummeled. <laughs> it's just yeah, you're just like ooh, um, cheese and onion flavored frazzles, and then you just explode into a bag of meat. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I feel sorry for the person who's got to clear that up. <laughs> they minimum wage person. I'm, I'm just thinking. I'm just think. I'm just thinking back to when I worked at Waitrose. If that happened to me, I'd just be like, just, no. I'm just going to take some sushi and then head home. My shift ends in yeah. five minutes. F this. Yeah, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I didn't come to this job to clear it up. No, I, re I, re I really didn't. And, in fact, I think that, I think that as much as I value that job, I think it ended up making me quite apathetic. Oh, everyone was just silent, just like okay, Ted, all right. Do to a second. You you were a waiter waiting for people to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> But um, but yeah, I think as a prequel, like this, I feel like this could work as like an entry point for people, and like that's not something you would normally say mm. about a prequel. But and the director, um, Matthew Vaughn, uh, not to be confused with Vince Vaughn, uh, said that he it felt more freeing to do a pre a century beforehand without any of the familiar characters more so than with X-Men first class where you still had like some of the familiar characters and he did take some liberties with like the continuity as pretty much every X-Men movie does but it felt like there was still some beats that he felt like he had to stay in line with in that movie whereas with the King's Man it felt like he was just having a really good time with all these different characters who could go anywhere. Yeah, it still felt like a Kingsman, mm. Kingsman film. 
despite being in the past. Yeah, I think it was the right choice. I think had he tried to just continue uh, the Eggsy um, character arc, I think it would have got more and more uh, stuck in the mud. I think going back a century, yeah, you said, just gives him so many more uh, degrees of movement. He he can just put in completely new characters and just go back to his creative best, which he which he's shown that when he's allowed to be creative, he produces such incredible characters. That's what I was thinking as well. I think like there's, I think there's still room for like the Kingsman franchise and series of films to expand. But I think that the character arc, the character arc of uh, Eggsy himself is probably complete. I mean, I'm not saying that you couldn't fit him into any more parts of the series. He could, pro- he could probably appear in like a couple of spin-offs and maybe like you know, a TV short series and like any video games or whatever. But I think, yeah, his his general spine of his character arc is done and dusted. So I was quite interested to see how they could expand the series. And I was a bit sceptical when I saw it was going to be a prequel. Um, and the only prequels that I've ever really liked have been probably Puss in Boots and the sort of Star Wars prequel trilogy, but um, I, I'd say that this one definitely pleasantly surprised me. It sort of had a bunch of tropes with like prequels to have, but they didn't impact the story in, in negatively in the same way that a lot of equivalent story points and um, tropes do in other prequels. So I think generally they did the series proud by giving it a good basis um, to sort of give a lot more stronger um site foundation to um and i would agree that it was it's a probably a good place to start off from if you're coming into the series fresh-faced yeah so i guess we'll go um around the horn or table or whatever and say what our favorite action sequence is um so mine was was when conrad uh rode a motorcycle up like on top of the castle and was just like firing at all his opponents. I thought that was like super, but, um, uh, let's see who, who wants to go first. Oh, what your favorite say... I mean... sequence was. Uh, you can go first. No, you go first. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. So <laughs> 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 um, for me, uh, and this might seem a bit weird, but for me, my favorite action scene was, uh, nearer the beginning. Uh, which sort of showed uh, the First World War fight scenes, and you just saw just how brutal it was. And I think a lot of World War One movies, they focus too much on trying to glorify it in a way. And I think this one just showed the pure brutality of just waves of soldiers being mowed down by machine guns, having absolutely no chance. And, I mean, it, it probably wasn't the most fun for a lot of people, but for me, it just really just sort of, I just really enjoyed the way it was portrayed and uh, was quite different to a lot of other uh, Kingsman fight scenes where generally you don't often see uh, people you should be rooting for just getting absolutely destroyed. It's generally just one person kicking the ass out of a lot of other people. Definitely a different tone from what you'd expect from other Kingsman sequences, but I thought it fit into this one pretty well. It was like surprisingly well. Um, what about you, Ted? What was your favorite action um, sequence? See, I thought it would have been the World War One scenes near the beginning for me as well. And to be, I do really enjoy them because, and I would say, in in uh, in respectfulness to James, I would say generally, like most, at least most World War One films, do not present that film uh, that conflict rather in a um, a particularly positive light. It's just always referred to, I find, in a lot of um, media as like being a 
a really futile and sort of like horrifying conflict for very little gain for either sides. But um, um, but I kind of see what he's saying there. Um, I think generally in terms of like them- thematics and um, setting, I'd say probably the probably the World War One scenes at the beginning are my favourite. But I think in terms of just like how tense and like action packed it was, I'd say like the attempted um, assassination on the scene was also really. You knew it was coming, but it was still sort of very tense and very sort of like nail biting, and it just kept me on the edge of my seat a bit, which I really wasn't expecting. But um, I was quite pleasantly taken off guard, to be honest. And I really enjoyed it. So yeah, I'd say probably that one for me. After first class, Matthew Vaughn wanted to do an X Men movie where the JFK assassination was part of the plot in some way. So it's kind of like he he got to like insert a different assassination <laughs> plot in this one. Uh, so, so, that's so kind of Days of Future Past just um, stole that idea from him. But instead of having it, they just said, oh, by the way, he attempted to kill JFK. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, Matthew Vaughn wanted to wait uh, um, to do Days of Future Past. Like, I think he wanted it to be the third movie, but Fox and some other people wanted them to, like, do it er- sooner. So that's why um, Matthew Vaughn is like, uh, or maybe it's like one of the reasons why he's like no longer the director on Days of Future Past. And then like he moved on and did the Kingsman movies, I guess. But um, I do kind of wonder how different that film series would have been if he had remained as a director. Like there's some things I enjoy about those uh, later movies, but I feel like Vaughn, might have possibly had like a better uh, or more cohesive singular vision that he could have like executed if he oh, yeah, remained definitely. in like, charge. If you look at the uh, recent Star Wars movies, the biggest problem they had was changing their director. Like changing from J.J. Abrams straight to Ryan Johnson just immediately made sure that they were just two completely different directors with two different viewpoints. And it made that sort of series of movies just very unlike each other, and you just and it, and it, and it definitely struggled to produce a cohesive story. And I think definitely X Men also, because once again, yeah, like you said, you had a bunch of directors all with different opinions. I sort of feel that with a film series, unless it goes on for ages, you should be looking to keep the same director just for the cohesiveness, right? Or or just like at the beginning of like the series or trilogy or whatever, just sit the people together and have them all agree on what the singular story is and not try to like undo what the other person did. Just have a plan, you know? Like Marvel does. Like, right. Yeah, because I'm sure Marvel doesn't always plan everything, but yeah. it feels like they plan everything and that that's just yeah i believe they have one guy whose main job is to keep the continuity going so i think uh, yeah i think so yeah script is checked through and made sure that they're not changing some character massively or if they say actually you know what this isn't the general plan we're going towards uh we need you to change this and and that's just been such a strength of that series that every single movie feels part of that universe it doesn't feel like oh wait this character's now completely changed their motives from the previous movie right and every once in a while they do explain a little thing that doesn't really fit like 
the ending of the Incredible Hulk they explained with a Marvel one shot to make it fit in the like timeline more and um, like the whole thing of like the Infinity Gauntlet being in that vault on Asgard in the first Thor movie like people notice that and then in Ragnarok it they explain oh that one was <laughs> yeah. like, hey, Indeed, that was such a like, great okay, clever move because everyone was saying <gasps> and they were like yeah it's a fake bro <laughs> Yeah, because beforehand, people were speculating that, oh, there are two Infinity Gauntlets and they'll both come into play. <laughs> yeah, it's like, no Such problem. a clever <laughs> and witty way of dealing with it, I felt. All right. Um, so, okay, uh, did, did everyone say their favorite I think Greg's sequence, missing. Or is there one person? I think Greg's... Yeah, I didn't, I didn't say my Okay, Greg. <laughs> Now's your time to shine, Greggy boy. I thought Greg said boy. septic for a second, and I was just like, What? <laughs> Well, let's go to my septic tank. Because um, that boy is bursting to the seams. Well, my my favourite set piece was near the end, where you had the ensemble cast all on horseback, charging towards Asputin and Craig. <laughs> Yeah, Craig was a weird name for an yeah, yeah. in this movie. And then they, and then they had, uh, they had the yeah, morning like, stars in hand, like a... just like clobbering all the enemies, left, right, <laughs> and center. And it was just heads flying, arms being torn off. Oh, it was uh, just was that, there was a really weird bit where it kind of like was sort of kind of the tongue-in-cheek reference to Machete, uh, where like one guy got his like guts pulled out and then like it got used as a rope by another character to take on the villains and it was like oh that's pretty hardcore it was just i mean stuff like that kind of did feel a bit out of theme for what the film was going for but it was quite funny at the same time to be honest Well, hey, they have to show the atrocities of this war, right? <laughs> World War I is kind of a synonym for pointless warfare, really, so I don't think they needed to. <laughs> let's, let's, <laughs> let's, be, let's be perfectly honest. It was just 50 million men and women dying for pretty much no reason. A family squabble. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, you took the apple pie. No, you did. Eh, eh, eh. I'm going to invade Serbia. Nye, nye, nye. Um, that's basically what it boiled down to, let's be honest. Indeed. <laughs> that's the most hodgepodge, <laughs> inaccurate description of the First World War possible. Over <laughs> history has been a better job of explaining <laughs> Yeah, a rusty old me. DVD of horrible <laughs> histories would have done a better job, to be honest. <laughs> The Great War, more like the not so great war. Rubbish, that was shit. Yes, it Stephen. Right, but <laughs> but yeah, like the sword fight with Rasputin and like the use of the Morning Star was like probably one of the more memorable moments and. It seemed like they really did take the time to train for all this stuff, and I think that really adds more believability to all this mm. as over the top. Yeah, indeed, because the Morning Star is just a very—it's an awesome weapon, but it's a very difficult weapon to use because you're swinging around a massive ball on a chain, and 
I think the way they went about it made it so much more useful. And like, it wasn't just swinging widely out of control. All the movements were just so perfect. It just, it just looked wonderful. Yeah, and what'd you guys think of the parachute scene? That was parachute. hilarious. Yeah, I loved it when they were floating down, and then Polly, as she is, she just decided to slice Conrad's parachute and just saw him drop, and I was like, "Yo, yeah. is that really necessary?" Yeah. It's like, yeah, her character turn towards the end of the film at that point was just really strange. It kind of just came out of nowhere, and like, it kind of. <laughs> It felt like you could kind of expect it, but at the same time, it just wasn't needed, and it kind of spoiled what was otherwise a really enjoyable character. Um, I, I enjoyed it like Greg did, but it was just like it just felt weirdly out of place for some reason. Yeah, and it took Conrad quite a while to recover from that, both physically and just emotionally, like being betrayed by yeah. someone who was like. Close I mean, it wasn't. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm not saying stuff like that has to be set up like from a mile away, but it just didn't feel very well set up at all so yeah i don't know yeah so like surprise for now yeah pretty much yeah yeah it felt a bit unnecessary because the character didn't really get out too much later in the movie anyway so it just felt Mm. like a hodgepodge it's like yeah let's make her the villain and just like uh didn't really need that at all so with all that being said, what did you guys think of the final confrontation between Conrad um, and Paul towards the end? Weirdly enough, it felt like the final confrontation from the good, the bad, and the ugly. It felt very sort of like stone cold and sort of like <laughs> eye to eye in the death of the pale blue moonlight. It just felt really... It was strange because it felt like, despite my misgivings with like the weird character turns towards the end of the film, it felt like it was a satisfying resolution to that particular strata of the um, the characters' arcs. And um, while I feel like they could have gotten to that point in a much more satisfying and narratively conclusive way, I feel, feel like that, as, as far as like con, con, pinpoint conclusions go, they could have done a hell of a lot worse. So, yeah, I, I quite enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I see what you're... I don't even know what the words are. We're going for I it's because my vocabulary is too far beyond your feeble American comprehension. Yeah, it's just like I'm using all these big yeah, boy words, true. and meanwhile you're just like, mm, uh, me, 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 likey burger. Hey, man, I, I'm the type of person who will say like and suppose <laughs> in a sentence. Okay, suppose like like I suppose. Yeah. Oh God, you really are from Florida. Um. <laughs> I'm from California. <laughs> uh, same thing, whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we get like the the final fight scene, and they kind of wrap it up really neatly, yeah. despite all the chaos and violence, and then follow it up with this um salmon for breakfast type of scene um just like you know the remaining hero characters just yeah, having which... a chat and whatnot i mean it should have had them fish fingers, fish fingers for breakfast you savage oh, sake i mean i think it's for Gary. have you not seen doctor <laughs> sorry i feel like yeah, i feel like if you'd made me Harry. breakfast it would be something like deep fried beef burgers or some bonkers stuff like that don't um, I mean, I'd have that for breakfast. No, d- d- stop. D- don't encourage him. <laughs> no, um, 
you could have any meal for breakfast, really. Yeah, no, you, you could couldn't. Have any You're not going to have something like moussaka for breakfast because really. that would be too rich for the morning. <laughs> like, and you're, you're you're telling me that you never have onions for breakfast? I do what like onions. I just don't have them for <laughs> breakfast because I'm not a base savage like you lot. I mean, if what I was fitter <laughs> and richer, I'd have like cooked breakfasts yeah. for. Breakfast, yeah, because like, I, th- I think gorgeous. In an ideal world, I'd actually really like to have a um, miso soup and sushi for breakfast every day, but I'm not. Yeah, just. Oh, that sounds good. Well, maybe not not every day for me, but like every. Oh no! Well, maybe not for me. Not it would be for me. It would be because I love every... miso soup and sushi. Yeah. It's just like so light and like strangely refreshing, and it's just oh, it just hits all the beats for me. <laughs> but yeah, going back to the original question, yeah, I felt that it was sort of nice because at the same time, I think one of the most important things about this movie was reminding you that this was mainly about sort of the aristocracy and sort of them. And I think to tr- and I think the salmon for breakfast was a great way of reminding you that this is just sort of the, the uh, sort of making you once again remember that these are rich people and had they just had like soldiers and egg boiled eggs and soldiers it would have been uh, it would have been a bit more forgotten right and during their conversation in this scene we get like you know i guess the final uh bow on top of the present of just like you know um conrad and his dad talking to each other about how proud they are of each other you know it's like you know the typical father son i'm proud of you thing and yeah i thought it was was, i mean there was like i guess it was strange because i felt like they could have probably done that scene in a more in a more um they could have probably filled out that scene in a more emotionally comprehensive way but i thought for the purpose it was serving it did a perfectly fine job that I can't really fault. So I didn't really have any actual major problems with it. It was, it was like it was a bit basic, but it was like, I mean, you know, it's like when you're in the mood for like, I mean, it's like when you're in the mood for a hot dog. So you just make a really basic one with like basic like mustard hot dogs and buns from the supermarket. It's not going to be anything great, but it's like because it's specifically what you want. You know what you're getting, and you don't mind that it's perhaps not the greatest thing that you could have gotten in that category. And that, I feel like that same way about that scene. It's like, I've seen better examples of it, but I'm for what it was, it served the purpose that it served perfectly fine. Yeah, who needs toasted bread when you can just put hot dog buns in the microwave? Even every time I talk to you guys about cooking, it just gives you <laughs> post-depression. It's just like, it's like microwave hot dogs, burgers for breakfast hot dog buns by themselves not hot dogs that makes it soggy and hard (laughs) i don't actually do that i I, I, I hope not but i just i just (laughs) um but yeah but before we go into final thoughts what'd you all think of the music wasn't anything like i hadn't heard before um but it served the it served the purpose quite well, and it, it set the scene well. I, I think I'd rate the music like a 6 out of 10, because it, it was like nothing really... They didn't try to do anything intelligent with the music, but like the purpose it served in each scene was fine enough. Yeah, and what were you saying, Greg? I thought it, it's, it's quite gritty. Like, it, it helped the action scenes in that kind of sense, because like obviously it's a world war. It, there is going to be violence, and I just felt that like 
some of the music went well with like the action scenes, like it was all timed and yeah. Yeah, I, I did think that the music during the part where like Craig uh, had his head shot off was pretty epic. But other than that, I don't remember much of the music. I'd have to go and listen to it again. Um, yeah, also interesting choice having Stanley Tucci play Craig. And you also have these other actors playing random soldiers and these blink and you'll miss some cameos yeah stanley tucci he really stood out there like you wouldn't think that he would have played such a good craig but i think craig was written so well for him that he he made it his own yeah for sure all right so i guess with that we could go into final thoughts and score out of 10 and um we haven't normally done this but i kind of think it'd be fun to start like doing this uh so um for unit of measurement like the number out of 10 you can say uh like an object related to the movie or whatever so like for example uh for i don't know like star wars you might say oh that was like six out of 10 lightsabers or seven out of 10 planets i don't know you like you can just like the world is your treasure oyster <laughs> oyster bro. for for unit um, i was gonna say that but i just for me i feel like the film is it's okay. definitely above average um it's one of the better prequels out there despite my misgivings about prequels not just in terms of their general quality but also the concept of them universally um and i feel like while there were certain aspects that I think could have used significant improvement that combined together all the different aspects of the film created something that was much greater than the sum of its parts and they all complemented each other quite well to um, perhaps cover up for each of the aspects of the film's misgivings um, and sort of shortcomings as well. So I'd say it's probably like a 7 out of 10. Um, it's probably, yeah, it's probably like somewhere between a 6.5 and, and a 7 out of 10. Uh, sorry, or, or as I should say, Six and a half sword canes out of ten. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Better than the uh, second movie, yeah. but still didn't quite get the sparkle of the of the original Kingsman movie. But at the same time, I don't think it was looking to because I think he understood he is, he understands by this point that he just can't. Uh, still a very enjoyable movie. A, a great introduction to the Kingsman series. Uh. I would probably give it um, six and a half out of ten parachutes. <laughs> <laughs> and those parachutes just explode or get flashed. <laughs> I feel that it did its purpose as a as a prequel, and like I, I can see them carrying on. Conrad's story. So I'm going to give this movie a seven Craigs. Seven out of ten Craigs. Okay. Um, yeah, and before I say my score, um, that, that was another thing I want to ask you guys about, was would you rather the next Kingsman movie continue from this or from like 
uh, golden circle. Like, I would like, love to check see the temperature how they deal with the Second World War because the reason why the First World War brought in Kingsman was obviously because so many of the aristocracy lost their family to it. So the Second World War, do they consider that a failure or do they say, well, it didn't devastate us the same way that the First World War did? What? How did they try and stop it? Was there any subterfuge? I think it'd be really interesting to look at some of the different uh, politics behind it. I feel like you'd get a really interesting debate going. Right, because both wars are terrible, uh, but you could definitely play with the themes of like how would different people of different classes like um, react to it. I get what James is saying, but I just feel like three for this film for this series. Three just feels like the magic number. I feel like if there's going to be any more media from it, I feel like I'd rather have it just be shorts or something focused on like singular missions. Um, so generally, I'd say I'm happy with the series where it is. I don't mind them expanding it in small increments, but for like feature length films, I think I'm satisfied with what we've got. I feel like, yes, Conrad's story had had an ending with um, his father and in that sense. But like I would like to see what more he can do. I'd like to see him grow even further. Like because the interwar periods like it was it was quite messy. I do kind of feel like they could just end it here, but if they had to do another movie, I would say follow Conrad and um because just in my head it's kind of weird that there are two Eggsy movies and one Conrad movie and it's like I'd kind of want it to be equal if they do continue, but I don't know what the current plans are. But my score for this movie, so I agree that it was better than the second one, but not as good as the first one. Um, Like, at best, I'd probably give the first movie, like, maybe, let's see, would I give it a 9 or 8.5? It's, like, somewhere around there, and Golden Circle would be, like, a 7 for me. Like, I know my scale was kind of different, I guess. Um, But The King's Man... um, I feel like I enjoyed it around how much I enjoyed the first Wonder Woman movie, which was like another World War One movie. Um, I'd probably give it an eight out of ten Morning Star. Nice. I mean, they they are thinking of doing you... Statesman, though. I've heard rumors of Statesman, the the American version of the Kingsman. Oh. I mean, put that work as Stop. well. Stop! Don't give them ideas. <laughs> Just. Uh, I mean, <laughs> but yeah, you know, like I mean, the statesmen, like they were a fun idea, but I, I, I just feel like, I just feel like Kingsman, the idea of the British stereotype is just so, so much more fun to deal with than the American stereotype, which is literally we just. Like I mean, whiskey. it was basically written for Channing Tatum, so. <laughs> yeah, indeed, it plays so well in it. Like, if they're going to do a film about statesmen, they need some more. I think it's going to be a, a Magic Mike prequel. <laughs> oh <What>? yes, <laughs> I see that. I feel like you guys are searching for a much different film than what we're thinking of. But um, I mean, hey, if that's your, your shindig, then go for it. <laughs> <The> shindig. <laughs> oh, all right, and um, yeah, I guess we did it boys we 
we um, season two of delayed replay has started <laughs> and is in the can season three next week. No, it just started. Um, but, um, but yeah, so like lots of stuff, more movies planned for this season um, in the immediate future. Um, I've got the schedule in front of me. Um, it, it'll kind of be a mix between like stuff that came out toward the end of last year and stuff that's newer. So Next will be the 355, which is an American spy movie that just came out. Um, and that one was actually like from Simon Kinberg, who uh, wrote and directed Dark Phoenix and also Koro X-Men The Last Stand. So another weird X-Men connection there. Um, and then Coming to America, which came out toward the end of last year. Then Marvel's Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings. I'll be new live action Tom and Jerry movie that came out toward the end of last year and old, which will be new weirdly enough. And then Godzilla versus Kong, which was last year. So yeah, some cool stuff to talk about in upcoming episodes. Thanks for joining me on this one, guys. Um, I guess we'll go one by one. Um, uh, Ted, thanks for joining. Uh, where can people find your stuff? I have a very old platform um, that I'm infrequently updating on um, Blogger, uh, where I go under the pseudonym The Crazed Critic. Uh, the name of my blog on there is Havin Amer, so H-A-V-I-N-A-Amer. And basically on there I do sort of like written film reviews, recipe posts and stuff like that. And then um, on YouTube I'm under either Gitbag the Great, where I do gaming videos and the occasional sort of podcasts on popular culture and video games, and um, Ted's Booze Cellar, where I review a wide range of food, alcohol, and other sort of different assorted products. So if people are interested in that sort of thing, then by all means, follow me on those platforms there. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you for and having me. Yeah, for sure. Great to have you. And I'll, of course, put the links in the show notes for this episode. Greg, thanks for joining. Where can people find the society? So the society has a Discord, which I think anyone can join, really. Yeah, there's a Facebook group. But yeah, you should just search up University of Sussex, Sci-Fi and Horror. You will find our Facebook page. And then the Discord link is on there. So we'd be happy to have you you join. Yeah, it's always fun, like, talking movies um, over there. And James, thanks for joining as well. Um, I don't know if you have anything to plug. (laughs) (laughs) Just just insert in, like, a 15-second advert about hot dogs or something. (laughs) This episode is sponsored by Burger King. Be a Burger King's man. (laughs) (laughs) The gorgeous taste of the Big Mac is a wonderful way to start the day. Mm. <laughs> also, you know what was like unintentional that happened? Like we recorded this in Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. How? That was a weird coincidence. How so? Because so, you know it's King's Man. Oh. <laughs> um. Yeah, and yesterday was um, MLK Jr.'s birthday, and but like over here, like Monday is what's technically people have that Monday off. So, with that, um, if you would like to email the podcast with 
your thoughts on movies that have been talked about here, or maybe you want to talk about how movies ended up uh, being like in your universe, um, you know, differences, similarities, whatnot, you can email delayedreplaypodcast at gmail.com. As for my own stuff, you can find my novel, Lemons in My Brain. It is available on Amazon. Go to stephenschinder.com for more info on that. I am also on another podcast called Star Trek Culture. Uh, we finished Star Trek Discovery Season 3 recently and are doing a rewatch of the original series as well as uh, reporting the Star Trek news every now and then. Uh, you can find that over at the YouTube channel Culture Slate. I'm also writing and editing for them, so culturesite.com is where you can find some stuff. And you can follow me at Steven Schinder on Twitter and Instagram and Steven Schinder Storytelling on Facebook. And yeah, I think that's everything. Um, if I forgot something, I'll put it in the show notes. But yeah, thanks, you guys, for joining me on this one. And, and without weekend. further delay, have a good day. And a good time.